Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful for your word. We come now under the instruction of your word. We pray, Lord, that it would speak to us, uh, that it would uh, refresh us, and that it would encourage us, and that it might even challenge us as we live our lives as Christians. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is John, and I'm on the team here. And I want to begin by addressing some of the mild panic that I saw on your faces as the scripture reading was read. There was no mild panic. Last week, Sam, he made the point that at Christ City Church, we preach through books of the Bible and we never skip verses. We never avoid verses. We never jump over verses. And if you've been paying attention, you've noticed that we've just skipped some verses. Verses 17 to 22 of chapter 11, we've just jumped over them and we've gone to verse 23 and you're asking yourself a legitimate question. Is Sam Bay a liar? <laughs> Let me set your minds at rest. Sam is not a liar. He wasn't lying to you. I need to explain what we've been doing if you've been tracking with our series, particularly those of you that are writing notes because you're asking yourselves, do I leave a gap? Do I not leave a gap? I know these are the big problems that we face when we skip verses, um, here's what's happening. As you know, we've been studying this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And the conversation has recently turned to be talking about and referencing the, the worship gathering, the church gathering, what we are doing here today. And last week, we looked at one of the problems that the Corinthian church was facing in, in the church gathering. And that was fun, wasn't it? Last week, that was great. Uh, and this week, there's another problem. Another problem, this week the problem is around the communion table, the communion table. Uh, by the way, th this section is structured in such a way to almost work like a sandwich, where Paul is referencing some of the problems in the Corinthian church around the communion table, but in the middle of this sandwich is a, a reference to what communion actually is. And so what we thought would be helpful would be to jump to verse 23, uh, lay some groundwork today as to what communion actually is, and then we can jump back into verses 17 to 22 and, and beyond that to look at where communion goes wrong. So that'll be next week, which will be fun. So Sam's not a liar. Don't worry, we don't skip verses here. Um, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. Uh, if you're from another church tradition this morning, then when I say communion, you might have heard it called Holy Communion. Um, you might have heard it called Eucharist. Eucharist is just a, uh, it comes from the Greek word uh, to give thanks, which is in our verses in verse 24 this morning. And, and or you might have heard it called the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper, which is um, what it's called in verse 20 of this section. So um, just for clarity, we're all, that's all referencing the same thing that we're talking about this morning. Um, if you're new to church, you've not been here before or you're fairly new, when I say communion, 
This is the moment in the worship gathering where um, you'll see this soon. Uh, people come to the front. There's servers at the front. There's, there's a little bit of bread and a little juice cup. And they serve those juice cups to, to people that come forward. Uh, and the, the bread, it represents the body of Christ. And the, the juice or the wine, it represents the blood of Christ. And so we eat that and we drink that. And if you're new to church, the best case scenario is that's a little confusing. Worst case scenario, you're thinking, what sort of cult have I just walked into? Eating flesh, drinking blood. You're looking at the person who brought you and say, oh, so this is what you do on a Sunday. Okay. I'm hopeful that this will be helpful for you to explain what is happening. But even if you've been around church for a while... Communion can be confusing, or at the very least, it can lose its significance over time, can't it? We do it every week here, and so I don't know how many times you've taken communion and you say, this, I do this because this is what I've always done, but I've done it so long that I forget why I do what I've always done. It can get to the point, I think, where communion can be trivialized in our community. You just go up there, you take the bread, and you're like, yep, yep, done it, go pick up the kids right? So with communion, we may be thinking it's confusing or, or maybe if you're new, concerning because it's foreign and it's strange to us or you might have forgotten its significance. It can be a little bit like this poppy. Now, for some of you, you'll know what this is straight away. You know what this is. But for some of you, you won't. You see, if you, uh, if you grew up in Canada or, or the UK, like myself, or another country that was involved in the First World War, you would have grown up with stories of the First World War. I've got great-grandparents that they've got all sorts of, I'm not entirely sure if they're true stories. They've been passed down to us. The atrocities, the heroics, the, the tragedies of war, the terrifying number of lives lost, the the wiping out of a generation of young men in, in muddy trenches. We know the stories. And for many, the poppy became a symbol of remembrance. A symbol of remembrance. Remembering the lives lost in the war. Because, because poppies, this flower, it grew in amongst the wooden crosses of the marked graves in the fields. Now, you know this. If, if you come from a country that wasn't involved in the First World War, that's, that's not your history. The poppy is a flower. This poppy is just a plastic flower. And you're thinking, what is he talking about? And that's okay. But if you're from a country that was involved in the First World War, the poppy is more than a flower. It's a symbol. All of the stories that you grew up with as a child. All of the history, all of the significance, all of the meaning is imbued in this flower. A flower that signifies something. It points to something more. The poppy is more than a flower to you if that is your story. And so as we look at communion today, before you write it off as something strange and foreign or as something that has just become trivial, I want you to think of the bread and the wine this morning like the poppy. And to suggest that there might be something more behind it that you either don't know or that you've forgotten. There might be something behind it. There might be some significance in it. 
maybe even significant to you. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want to look today from our text at three aspects of communion, three aspects of communion that will help explain the significance of communion for us. And so here are our three points this morning for those of you who are writing notes. Um, Number one, receive. Number two, remember. And number three, repeat. Receive, remember, repeat. Number one, receive. In this room, as I look out, there is a wonderful, eclectic mix of culture and background. It's one of the joys of of being part of this community, if we're honest. My, My community group, we figured out that there might be as many cultures as there are people in our community group. And in our various cultures, we have various traditions, don't we? Things that have been passed down from generation to generation. And these traditions that have been passed down to us, they work in in such a way to to bind the community together, to, to form a part of your identity, to bring unity with your community and your heritage. Some of you may not know this, but we're a Mennonite church. That's our heritage. It was a surprise to me too. I didn't know what a Mennonite was before I moved to Canada. When you join a Mennonite church, especially when you're on staff as a pastor, the Mennonites, they they sort of circle around you because they're really keen to tell you about the heritage. And that's great. So, (laughs) And here's here's one of the things that I've found out about Mennonite culture that is... One of the things I found out about Mennonite culture that is, is really important that you should know, there is, there's a sacred book. Do you know that? There's a sacred book in Mennonite culture. It's a famous book. It's second only to, to the Bible. Um, this book is called Mennonite Girls Can Cook. Do you know that book? <laughs> Do you know, you know that book? Yeah, it's, it's, apparently it's great. I, I've not read the book because, because it's called Mennonite Girls Can Cook. Um, but I'm told it is the authority on Mennonite cuisine. And so um, go ask your nearest uh, local Mennonite. I'm sure they've got it, and I'm sure that they would be willing to share it with you. This book has been handed down from generation to generation. I'm joking, but, but this is the language of our text. This is the language of our text, this handing down, this receiving and delivering. This is what Paul says at the start of Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Paul here is actually employing technical language for the passing on of tradition. He's making a point here about this is the passing on of a tradition. And this is how tradition works, isn't it? You pass, you receive it, and you deliver it. You you pass the baton down through the ages. And so maybe owning a Mennonite girls can cook book and reading that book and cooking from that book and passing it to your young Mennonite girl children. Um, No, it says something about who you are. It's a joke, but it it says something about who you are. It says something about your history. It says something about your community. You see, traditions say something about our identity and identification with a particular community. It's a marker of who we are, and it's the same with communion. To receive the institution of communion is to identify with the community of the church. It's to stand in the tradition of the saints. And what a glorious thought that is. You think about that when you're 
taking communion, when you're taking communion and you think to yourself that you are joining not just with every Christian around the world, but every Christian throughout history that has followed in that tradition, united under the Lordship of Christ. We didn't decide to do this. Do you know that? We, di- we didn't decide, we didn't, we didn't make this up. We didn't come up with a strategy and like, we're going to do this meal and it's going to be bread and it's going to be juice and or wine. And we didn't decide to do this. This meal was given to us. It was given to us, passed down from generation to generation. And we, Christ City, we will pass it to the next generation. You know, I'm looking forward to the moment where, God willing, my boys, they receive Christ. They profess Christ. And I get to serve them communion for the first time as they brought into this community. You know, if you're not yet a Christian here today, I look forward to the moment where you take it for the first time. It's the reason why until then we say hold back if you're not a Christian. Because taking communion says something about what you believe. It says something about who you're associating with. It says something about your identity and your identification with this community. But the meal is not just about our identity. It also points us to where the authority lies in our community. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you've been tracking with our series, you'll have seen that the Apostle Paul has been challenging the church in Corinth how to live. He's been challenging them them about their behavior. He's He's been condemning them. He's been rebuking them, occasionally commending them, but mainly rebuking them because, let's face it, they're a pretty rebukable bunch. He's been telling them how they ought to behave, how they ought not to behave. And you might be thinking, as some people do even now, who is Paul to tell the Corinthian church what to do? Like, who, who is he to tell the church what to do? In fact, you may be thinking to yourself, who is Paul to tell me what to do? I heard a so-called theologian once say, Jesus I love, but Paul I tolerate. Jesus I love, but Paul I tolerate. Maybe that's how you feel this morning. Maybe that's how you felt last week. There's a problem with that statement, I would suggest. And the problem is that Paul's claim to authority is never in himself. Paul's claim to authority is never in himself. It's always in Jesus. We saw a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, that Paul says, imitate me, imitate me, right? But, but he sort of qualifies that boldness by saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Earlier in chapter 9, his claim to what we might call apostolic authority, his authority as an apostle, is grounded in the fact that he had seen Jesus. It's not grounded in the fact that he just thinks he's a special guy, clever guy, insightful guy. He had seen Jesus, and he had been sent by Jesus to proclaim what Jesus had commissioned him to proclaim. Paul's authority was sourced in the person of Jesus. And it's the same here when it comes to communion, where Paul says, I received this from the Lord, and now I'm delivering it to you. Now, Paul isn't saying here that he was there when when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. He's, He's not saying that, but he's saying that he is a recipient of this tradition, 
that is found in the Gospels. And so he too has received this from the Lord and now he's delivering it. And we, we too have received this from the Lord. That's the language that we can use because this meal finds its source and authority in the Lord. You know, communion instituted by Jesus is not just symbolic of who we are, but of whose we are. It points us to where the authority lies in this community, in this church. At Christ City, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And when Jesus says to do something, guess what? We do it. That's why we take communion. If you want to know why we take communion, Jesus told us to do it. So Christ City, when we come and take communion together this morning, and I say together because, by the way, communion is not something that you do by yourself. It's something that we do as a community. When we come and take communion this morning, we are making a statement about the type of community we are, who we are and whose we are. We are joining with the multitudes of Christians that have gone before us and around the world who proclaim the Lordship of Jesus. This meal has been given to us. And then the question comes, what is it that we have received from the Lord? What is it that we have received from the Lord? What has been delivered to us by Jesus through the apostles, through the generations, to us today, 2,000 years later? What have we received? Number one, receive. Number two, remember. Remember. Verse 23 starts, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I'm sure you know this, but the Bible is made up of two parts. Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament, broadly speaking, speaks about God's relationship with the people of Israel. This people began with Abraham and his family, and the descendants of his family grew into a nation. And what was unique about Israel was that God had specifically chosen this nation to be the means by which he would reveal his character to the world. And if you read about the exploits of Israel, the big picture is that God is always faithful, always just, always kind, always loving. And Israel are rarely any of those things. And it comes to a point in the history of Israel where, as I'm sure you'll know if you've read your Bibles in Exodus or if you've been here long enough or if you've watched the animated film, The Prince of Egypt, uh, Israel are enslaved to Egypt. As we know, God raises up a man called Moses to demand the release of the people of Israel and Egypt. Naturally, they're not that keen on the idea because they want to keep their slave workforce. And there's a bit of a back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt. And then God ultimately brings some plagues. Famous story. Famous story. Exodus 7 to 10 speaks of nine plagues that God brings, but still... A stubborn Pharaoh won't let the people of Israel go, but there's one final plague. One final plague. This tenth plague is more devastating, more destructive than any of the plagues 
that came before it, so much so that a concession needs to be made, so much so that accommodation needs to be made, a way needs to be made, even for the people of Israel to avoid its destruction. And so instructions are given by God to Moses, to the people, to kill a lamb, to kill a lamb and to, and to place the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the home. And then instructions are get given to, to prepare a meal and to have that meal within those homes. And then in Exodus 12, 12, it says this. God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. The final plague led to the release of Israel from slavery, and the Passover meal... The subsequent meal that was instituted became for Israel a constant reminder of God's salvation, a memorial, a time to remember, a time to remember that, that God had saved them from Egypt. When they would remember God's promise that when he sees the blood, he would pass over them. The poppy is more than a flower and the Passover meal was more than just a meal. It was a symbol of God's mighty salvation in that community. It was a sign of his covenant faithfulness. It was a moment to remember all that God had done for them. And now I say all of this because in our text today, Paul is referencing the moment where Jesus celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples. So you have to imagine all of that history, all of that story, all of that significance is brought into this moment. The disciples knew the story. Jesus knew the story. It's all brought into this moment. It's all imbued in this moment with Jesus and his disciples the night before he would die on the cross. And so Jesus takes the bread and he says, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus takes all of that history, all of that story, all of that significance, and he takes the story of Israel's salvation from Egypt. He takes the lamb who was slain. He takes the blood that God says when he sees it, he will pass over it. He takes this demonstration of God's covenant faithfulness and his love for his people. He takes the slaughter of the firstborn sons and he says, all of that, pull it all together. You've got it all in your mind. All of that is pointing to this moment. This moment where tomorrow I will die. The moment where God's one and only son would be slaughtered. The moment where the lamb would be slain. The moment where blood would become the means of salvation for many. The defining and ultimate demonstration of God's faithfulness and God's love for us. As his body is broken and his blood is spilled, not just to free us from the chains of Pharaoh, but from the chains of sin. 
Christ City, the, the poppy is more than just a flower, and the, the bread is more than bread. The wine is more than wine. This is his broken body for you. This is his blood poured out for you. Do you know that this morning? If you take away one thing this take away one thing this morning, take away that Jesus died for you. Simple truth. We say it every week. Hopefully you say it during the week. Jesus died for you. If you're here and you've never heard that before, let me tell you, Jesus died for you. If you've taken communion so many times, you've forgotten why you do it, let me remind you, Jesus died for you. This story, this history, this significance, it all points to a moment. It no longer points to the exodus. It points to the cross. Where captives to sin and death are made free in Jesus. And we're called to remember. That's what we're called to do. We're called to remember. We're called to take this meal to remember that simple truth. With all of that story and all of that history and all of that significance imbued in it. But I want to pause. Because there's a danger that we can misunderstand what I mean by remember. In fact, I think there's a, there's a way that we can empty communion of, of what it really, what, what's really going on. Because while the poppy is more than just a flower, let me suggest this. That the bread and the wine is more than a poppy. What's happening with the bread and the wine is more than what happens when we put on a poppy on a certain day in the year to remember the dead. Let me explain what I mean by that. Some of you know this. Some of you don't. Let me give you a quick overview. History of understanding what is actually happening in communion is complex. It's controversial. It can be confusing sometimes. Um, but I think there are two errors that we need to avoid when we consider what is happening when we take communion. And I want to call these two errors, first, a simply memorial view, a simply memorial, and the second, a strangely mystical. So a simply memorial view and a strangely mystical view. What is actually happening in communion? Well, a simply memorial view says this, when we eat the bread and the wine, all that is happening is happening in us. And it's mainly happening in here. It's, it's a cognitive activity, a, a recollecting of a past event. Like, like remembering where you left your keys or, or remembering a childhood memory or, or even like the poppy. Remembering those who died in the First World War. And so the simply memorial view would be what we're doing at communion is simply bringing to mind the fact that Jesus died. The, the strangely mystical view says that when we take the bread and the wine, it's not happening in here that's, that's changing. It's actually something that's happening in the bread and the wine itself. Something is changing in the bread and the wine. This, this view goes on to say something like the bread and the wine is transforming into the actual body and the actual blood of Christ. And so what we're doing when we take communion is we're actually eating flesh and we're actually drinking blood. It can, it can lead us to think that there is something intrinsically special about the, the, the bread and the wine here. Like, it, like it's a magic trick that we do here. 
right? You know, funnily enough, you know the word hocus pocus, the phrase hocus pocus? It comes from this type of understanding of communion. Back, back when the priests would perform the Catholic Mass in, in Latin, and by the way, at that point, no one spoke Latin other than the Catholic priests, and so they, no one knew what was going on. The, the Catholic priest would say, this is my body in Latin, which said, hoc est corpus meum. Hoc est corpus meum. And the people would hear, hocus pocus. <laughs> and that's where the phrase comes from. Now, you might come from a different tradition with different views, and that, that's fine, but we wouldn't hold to any of those, either of those views here at the church. I think the simply memorial view seems to me says less than what Scripture says. It says less than what is actually going on. And the strangely mystical view, I think, goes beyond what Scripture tells us is happening. And so... The question is, what is Jesus actually suggesting when he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What's, what's actually happening? Well, I think the clue is in our understanding of the activity of remembering. What is it that we're doing when we, when we remember? Bible scholar Michael Horton, he says this. In our Western Greek intellectual heritage, remembering means recollecting, recalling to mind something that is no longer a present reality. Nothing could be further from the Jewish conception. For example, in the Jewish liturgy, remembering means participating here and now in certain defining events in the past and also in the future participating here and now in those defining events, either in the past or in the future. You see, the call to remember here isn't simply a recollection of the past event, not simply a memorial, but it's a present participation in and a continued ongoing engagement with the events that it's referring to. For example, when the Bible calls us to remember the poor, we don't just go, yeah, when the Bible calls us to remember the poor, there is a, an activity involved, a present activity. So when Jesus, when, when, we're, when, when we're to remember Jesus, when we're to eat and drink, what are we actually doing? Anthony Thistleton, who is a First Corinthians scholar, he puts it like this, helpfully. To remember God is to engage in worship, trust, and obedience, just as to forget God is to turn one's back on him. Failure to remember is not absent-mindedness, but unfaithfulness to the covenant and disobedience. To remember Jesus is not simply to be mindful of what he has done, it's to worship him in the present for what he has done and continues to do by the power of his Spirit. This is why back in chapter 10, I don't know if you remember this, Paul contrasts the communion table with idol food. Do you remember that? Idol food? They were great weeks, weren't they? Idol food. He says one is a participation in Jesus. Participation there, koinonia, it's communion. That's where we get the word communion from. It's a participation in Jesus. The other is a participation in idols, in demons. 
Christ City, this is not simply a commemoration of the dead like the poppy. This is communion with the living, the risen Christ. We are called to remember, not simply to recall, but to commune with Jesus, to worship Jesus, to take the bread and the wine in the presence of Jesus. Number one, receive. Number two, remember. Number three, Repeat. Repeat. Verse 26 says this. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In our closing verses today, there is an implication that we are meant to repeat communion, repeat the communion meal, and in so doing, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. We are proclaiming the Lord's death. And I want to suggest that there is both an internal element and an external element to that. An internal element and an external element. The internal element is communion is shaping you. Communion is shaping you. We know, don't we, that our habits, our routines, they shape us. I don't know if you've noticed recently, but there's tons of books out there about habits, the power of habits, what they do to us, how we're supposed to cultivate them, how we're supposed to get rid of the bad ones. There's tons of books out there, both Christian and secular. They're all saying roughly the same thing, and it's this. What you do repeatedly shapes who you are. What you do repeatedly shapes who you are, both physically, psychologically, and even spiritually. The question is not if our habits shape us, but how do our habits shape us? How do our habits shape us? My current exercise routine is misshaping me. (laughs) Your rhythms, your routines, your habits, from the, the content you consume to the food you consume. From your workout routines to your work routines, you are being shaped. Consciously or unconsciously, intentionally or unintentionally, you are being shaped by what you do repeatedly. In James Smith's famous book, You Are What You Love, he says this. Christian worship, we should recognize, is essentially a counterformation to those rival liturgies. And liturgies there, here, rituals, habits, routines, the things we do repeatedly. Counterformation to those rival liturgies we are often immersed in. Cultural practices that covertly capture our loves and longings, miscalibrating them, orienting us to rival versions of the good life. You see what he's saying there? He's saying that when we worship here, when we gather together, it's the reason why it was tough for us during COVID. When we gather together, when we worship here, when we take communion, we are counteracting the ways the world is trying to shape us, or better put, to misshape us. question is, how is communion shaping us? How is it shaping us? Communion makes us look to Jesus so that we can be made more like Jesus. It's shaping us to look like our crucified Lord. It's pointing us to the cross. It means what it means to identify with the community of the church is to identify with the crucified Lord. It's to identify with Christ, the one who hung on a tree. 
It's shaping us to live a life of self-sacrificial love for the sake of the other, laying down our rights for the sake of the other. It's shaping us, if you think about it, in the way that Paul has been trying to say to the Corinthians for the first 10 chapters of his letter. To be like Christ. To love as he loves. To give up his rights for the sake of the other. To lay down his life. That's why it's so important that we take communion. Because this is the practice that Jesus has given us not only to remember the gospel, but to be formed by the gospel, to be formed into a gospel community. So internally, communion is shaping you. That's why we do it every week here. You never miss the gospel here at Christ City, even if the preacher does. Internally, communion is shaping you, but externally, communion is being proclaimed to others when we take it. You know, the word proclaiming in our text this morning, it literally means preaching. So it's not just me here preaching today. When you come forward and you take communion, you are going to be preaching the gospel, proclaiming the Lord's death, preaching the cross. When we're taking communion, we are sharing the good news that Jesus died not just for us, but anyone who's in here who has not yet accepted Christ. We're proclaiming the good news of the gospel. When we take communion, it will serve not only to identify us as a community, but also to invite those outside of that community to say, come. To say, come. Come and partake of this meal. Come and put your trust in Jesus. Turn from your sins. The word in the Bible for that is repent. Repent of your sins. Turn and turn towards Jesus. Come and taste forgiveness. Come and taste the Lord's goodness. Come and taste the joy of the Lord. Come and taste hope for the first time. Come and taste life. Come to be set free from the bondage of sin and the fear of death. Come to Jesus. We repeat communion week on week because it shapes us internally as a community and it proclaims the good news of the gospel to those who would come. Let me close with this. We're told to partake of this meal when? Until he comes. Until he comes. What does that mean? <laughs> Paul is reminding us here that Jesus gave us this meal to foreshadow, or better yet, to foretaste another meal. A meal that John, the author of Revelation, he got a glimpse into. The final book of the Bible, Revelation, the author John, he had a vision of a meal. This meal is often referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. A meal that would take place at the end of time. This is what John saw in Revelation 19. He says this, Then I heard what seemed to be a, the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Revelation describes a meal where the Lamb who was slain would be married to his bride. Where the Lamb who was slain would be married to his bride. That's strange and foreign language, but now you know who the Lamb is. Is Christ. And as we read, we find out that the bride is his church. This symbolic language, it takes all of that history, all of that story, all of that significance, and it points us to the end to which we are all made, union with God forever. That's our hope. And so Jesus gave us this meal as a foretaste of that meal. He invites us to the Lord's Supper, and he will invite us to the Last Supper. And Christ City, he is present with us in this table until we're present with him at that table. 